Hey everybody, once again it's Dr. Bennett, and once again I am turning the microphone on and not turning it off. It's July 2nd, 2022. Coming up on the 4th of July, which is a great day, beautiful day to be an American. And I want to talk about specifically why the American system of government is good. You know, we're on this illiberal right-wing train, most of us, and I think we're all doing that primarily because we've become aware that these institutions that we've regarded as sacred have become essentially hollowed out by people who despise them and they're now wearing those institutions like a skin suit and demanding the deference that those institutions used to command and so we're just refusing to be manipulated in that way we're saying we're not going to be told that we're unpatriotic uh, because we don't defer to this corpse just because it's it's wearing the red, white, and blue. But I'm going to say that actually freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to bear arms, the right to a trial by jury, separation of powers, popular sovereignty, federalism, these are all really good things that were worth doing. And a lot of these reactionary commentators will say well you know it all it all has fallen apart and and therefore it was it was a it was a rotten system but the idea that just the act of writing down all these rules was supposed to protect the country forever against subversion would have struck the founding fathers as ridiculous and also like pathetic like oh you you want to be free and comfortable in this in this beautiful country forever because of something that your great-great-great-grandparents did and you never want to fight for it, like, give me a break. They didn't think they were at the end of history. They didn't think that they were trying to engineer this autistic puzzle box just right and then they would never have to do it again. Government would just stop being a problem. Tyranny would stop being a problem. They pretty much knew exactly how things were going to collapse in terms of faction and sectionalism and the people voting themselves benefits from the public treasury. That was always anticipated, assumed would happen. You don't get to take these rights won by strong, courageous, violent men and just hand them to weak and spineless men and expect them to hang on to them. Everything's like this, whether it's wealth or faith or power or culture or prestige. If your heirs aren't worthy... It doesn't matter how much you stack the deck in their favor. And now that progressives have more or less jettisoned the Founding Fathers as exemplary, or the American project as something admirable, we can finally have an honest conversation about who they were. If you want to keep Washington and Jefferson, you have to keep them as they were, not this fake boldlerized version that you know your your normie con uncle wants them to be or the kind that you were raised on in social studies in the 1990s and then these were guys who ruled their households with patriarchal authority including their servants they fought duels they castrated 
sex offenders um, extra-legally, extrajudicially, and particularly for a Latter-day Saint, um, the, the, the normie Latter-day Saint who believes the Constitution was divinely inspired and now, you know, he's sort of trying to figure out for himself whether or not that includes, like, trans rights. Um, he has to confront who these men were that he believes to have been divinely inspired to write the Constitution that they did, which uh, restricted the franchise to white landowning males. And he has to confront the fact that the the Imperium that is now twerking in America's skin that he is squealing over at the Super Bowl uh, would have been disgusting to those men and that it practices every tyranny that they fought to abolish and a bunch of others that they couldn't have even imagined. And that'll be a healthy thing for him to have that confrontation. It is sort of dialectic, right? Like they were uncomplicated heroes and then it goes, oh no, they were, they were villains and then it's like, well, they were heroes who don't share your value system. And what does that say about your value system? At the uh, Salt Lake meetup, we talked about Albion's Seed, which is a fantastic book about four folkways of the English settlers that came to America. So there's the Puritans, the Cavaliers, the Quakers, and the Border Reavers. The Puritans settled New England, the Cavaliers settled Colonial Virginia, the Quakers settled Pennsylvania, Delaware, and the Borderers settled the backcountry, primarily because they weren't welcome anywhere else and nobody else wanted to live near the Indians. So, you get the Puritans who came over from East Anglia to New England, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, who were extremely literate, educated, craftsmen and traders building cities basically the ones who brought industrial civilization to the new world and their contribution to founding stock in the american system of government was this very intense invasive localized direct democracy so we're going to get together and we're going to vote on what color your house can be and how long your wife's uh, dress can be and what days you can dance on if you're allowed to dance at all and it, basically uh, that is the sense in which they are Puritan in the sense that people uh, make fun of Puritans about but that phenomenon of like everything should be put to a vote everything should be subject to the democratic process is almost entirely a progressive phenomenon now and the Puritan model of freedom, their version of what it meant to be free, was that you get to be free as a group. Your tribe, your church, should be absolutely unfettered in establishing the rules within its sphere. And so the idea that freedom meant that you as an individual got to do whatever you wanted to do, that's alien to the Puritans. But they did have this intense sense that nobody was above the law, that we're going to write everything down and we're going to be obedient to that. Everyone's going to be held to it. And frankly, when you think about what they went through to get here, the Puritans and the Separatists were run out of England 
had basically all of their property confiscated and went to live in a slum in Holland, which I think was called like Stink Alley. I'm pretty sure it's called Stink Alley. And they were getting these backbreaking industrial labor jobs. And after several years of that, the leader of the colony, William Bradford, said that his congregation was aging so rapidly that they would soon scatter or sink under their burdens. And not only that, but their people were assimilating to the liberal customs of the city because it was a uh, was one of the first modern metropoles with all of the decadence and squalor that comes with that. So in 1620, in exchange for the ship Mayflower and enough provisions to cross the Atlantic, the pilgrims made a pitch to the merchant adventurers of London that they could have an equity stake in this new Jerusalem, this city on a hill that, that the pilgrims were going to build. And they agreed to bring along some secular settlers. So already they're kind of having to compromise their separatist deal. And they promise to send fur and timber and fish back to England to repay the investment. And they knew that the English colony at Jamestown had just been wiped out, or essentially wiped out by disease and starvation 10 years earlier. And they were going to a harder, colder, rockier part of the country. They knew they were going to have to deal with hostile natives, but it was either that or go extinct in Leiden, either through death or through assimilation. So they get in the boat and the caulking fails pretty early on. So the passengers are soaked through day and night for 10 weeks, violently seasick, They didn't find a suitable settlement until December 7th, by which time the ground was frozen. You couldn't plant anything. Their scouting party had to sleep on the shore, on the beach, with wet shoes and stockings that froze to their feet. And the rest of the party stayed on board the Mayflower with the failed caulking, soaking and freezing. And I think like half of them on the boat died of scurvy and pneumonia and tuberculosis. Finally, they find this Indian cache of corn and beans, and they use that for the spring planting. And the celebration of of that harvest uh, in the following autumn was the first Thanksgiving. And so first of all, if, if a group like that who has gone through that much to get here is to say, we're going to decide what the rules are, and your abstract notion of individual liberty, what you think people ought to be allowed to do, um, we don't really give a shit. Like, familiarize yourselves with the code of conduct, please. Now, it's really freaking obnoxious when it becomes this universalizing, all-consuming national project, which is clearly what the intent is now. But for that colony of settlers who had gone through what they'd gone through, you can respect it. And ultimately, there's a case to be made that you can't really have freedom unless you're free to make constraints, unless you're free to set rules. The best analogy that I've heard on that topic is the nude beach, right? If if I live near a family beach and I take my kids there and we shop there, we go to the restaurants, and then someone comes along and says, we're going to turn this into a nude beach. And, you know, you're still free to use it as a family beach. Like, you can still do what you want to do. But we are going to expand freedom. 
and the set of things that you're allowed to do on this beach now expands to um, having your tits out. Well, freedom is really a question of what you want to do, right? If what you want to do is enjoy the beach with your kids uh, without exposure to exhibitionists, then your freedom has been substantially curtailed. And so there's a real sense in which your freedom is not just the freedom of everyone to do what they want reciprocally. It's the freedom to decide what goes on at the beach. And that ultimately is the kind of freedom that I want for my guys. Not the absence of rules, but us making the rules. And what do you learn from the Puritans on that score? Well, you learn that one of the problems they have is infinite faction, infinite schism. Because when you want to define a heuristic for like all human behavior, the odds that you're going to have substantial agreement across the board and that that agreement will persist across time, across generations, is basically nil. And the Puritans have faded into sort of the, the background radiation of American mainline Protestantism, the Congregationalist churches, which as far as I know are the only successor to the Puritans are, you know, lady priests and, and, and rainbow chasubles and everything else. Ultimately, they lost the battle to hold on to their barriers, their borders, what made them who they were, what made everything is defined by what it excludes, what makes us us and what makes them them. And like with any other social engineering project, you can say, was that a flaw in the design or was that just entropy? You know, how long should these things be expected to last? Like, they were obviously wrong from the perspective of, like, their divine commission. It didn't work out the way that they expected it to. God wasn't in it. But just from the perspective of living the way you want to live and raising your kids the way you want them raised and inculcating that culture to the next generation and basically a society replicating and sustaining itself, how much is that possible? How much is desirable? I was talking to a friend of mine who's a student of Nietzsche who said that Nietzsche's problem with the image of the patriarch, which I've always assumed to be an uncontroversially positive masculine ideal, at least for guys like us, is that the patriarch is dedicated to holding on to what he has, to maintaining stasis, to holding things together, and... And there's a kind of a death in that image. And that's not how I see patriarchy, either individually or in general. But I, I can see the problem that he's trying to address there, which is that you need dynamism. You need transformation. You need change. And that, I think, is probably why I don't call myself a conservative. And most of us, those of us who don't call ourselves conservative, I think that's probably the reason, is we recognize that the institutions that have failed have failed for a reason. They need to be replaced by something new. One of the most interesting things about this book in general is using all of these four folk ways to calibrate your own intuitions about what's right and wrong, what's freedom, what's slavery, what's tyranny, what's the right way to live. Realizing that you would be strange to all of your ancestors. And in other ways, not strange. You clearly have... It's not the way that 
progressives would argue that like everybody born prior to say 1940 was a moral monster but the things about your morality that strike you as obvious would not be obvious to your ancestors anyway so much for the puritans next comes the quakers and basically if there is any element of your psychology that you feel is kind of a modern prison whether that's your attitude toward spirituality or your distaste for hierarchy basically all of the all of the instincts the moral instincts that animate progressivism and that make it challenging for you to resist that or to explain why it ought to be resisted to others or that make it difficult for your family to understand why you can't get down with pride parades etc black lives matter most of that probably comes from the quakers more than any other of these groups the quakers have essentially vanished as a coherent cultural group while their worldview has become the dominant cultural paradigm across the west and if you dig their style there's a christian metaphor to be drawn there that they sort of died out and in the process of the seed dying and breaking open the plant grew of the four folkways they were the most enamored with reciprocal liberty meaning i'll leave you alone you'll leave me alone we'll all act in accordance with our conscience and a lot of them were merchants and that's probably a partial explanation for that it works very well if you're planning to do a lot of traveling and a lot of sales it's an easy moral structure to live by when you have to deal with lots of different people all the time. Now that's not to say that they weren't judgmental, but they didn't believe in coercion. So all of their moral strictures, which were pretty deep, I mean they were they were extremely uncomfortable about sex and the body and having fun. Um, arguably they were more puritan than the puritans in terms of their behavioral ideals and what they thought was the right way to live. They just enforced it through <laughs> essentially nagging, um, you know, the, the light of your superior example um, and nagging. And like if you were to ask most Christians in an unguarded moment how they're supposed to interact with non-believers, they'll basically give you the Quaker answer that, you know, we just... Uh, we just love them and we teach them and we preach and yes there's exceptions for the civil law like there's things that we have to stop coercively like crime but there's not a great deeply considered theory about how that violence should be used because it kind of shouldn't be used and we don't feel great about it but it's like the reality of the situation and if you juxtapose that against you know, turn the other cheek, and you really hold a Christian to the fire on that, um, it's anybody's guess what answer you'll get. It kind of depends on the person. Because there isn't a coherent answer that they've been sort of trained to give. And I say, I mean, that includes us too, Latter-day Saints. One of the stories in this book, in 1690, a gang of pirates stole a ship in Philadelphia and went up and down the Delaware River robbing and the Quakers got into this debate about whether it was okay to use violence to stop them. And like, here you are, you're, the rubber's meeting the road. 
and there was a schism in the faith over that. And that's basically the stuff that they schismed about was where does our principle bow to reality, if it bows to reality at all. And just the existence of the Quakers in a territory like that with, you know, hostile Indians and um, other strident religious groups, you know, it's indicative that that way of living is maybe more practicable than it would seem to be at first glance. They lucked out in the character of the local Indians, but they also had this buffer of um, extraordinarily violent border reavers um, who essentially did all the fighting of the really rough Indians on the frontier. And there's a well-worn argument about whether that's hypocritical or not, that we, you know, we do that with the Europeans now. You know, they, they hate how violent our culture is, but we're the one guaranteeing their defensive umbrella. And the Quakers, uh, I think, would be considered modern, even progressive by like 1950s standards in terms of the ways that they raise their children and, and maybe even to a certain extent uh, in their attitudes toward women. Very permissive parenting, um, not sexually permissive for women, but but definitely like behaviorally permissive and egalitarian in marriage. And they had lady preachers way back then. So like basically you get someone to read this book and you can more or less divine their attitude toward modernity by how do they feel about the Quakers? Were the Quakers the good guys in this, like in the grim darkness of the 17th century, there is only war except for the Quakers? Or do you view them as like a, a foretaste of everything that went wrong? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of theatrically upset about the Quakers when I read the book. I'm, I'm annoyed by their pacifism and their self-righteousness. But if I'm being honest with myself and I'm not like straining to inhabit a reactionary headspace, you know, they're as close to the way that I raise my kids and the way that I actually in real life treat my wife as, you know, as you get in those times. And so my frustration with them has more to do with them being this, like, voice in my head that I can't get out, rather than me, like, experiencing real intuitive revulsion at what they stand for. And, like, I don't believe that there's any sense in which, you know, the world saw the superiority of Quaker life and decided to consciously emulate it, or even unconsciously emulate it. I think the Quakers were just the vanguard of reconciling religious belief with cosmopolitanism. Like what way of life works if you're going to be surrounded by that kind of diversity of thought and belief and behavior. And that's maybe why I find it so frustrating, because they were so strident and self-righteous about it. And it's like easy easy to to you don't actually have to stand for anything and the fact that you're refusing to stand for anything like physically like with your body or even with your words the fact that that becomes indicative of your moral superiority that's the part that disgusts me like oh mom says that i'm not allowed to fight like jesus i'm, a, I'm being obedient to jesus and that's why i'm not gonna stick my neck out it seems like basically the inevitable consequence of A, not taking religion very seriously, and B, being in, in a captured 
controlled environment where being really strident about your beliefs is just too costly. So yeah, I don't think that um, I don't think that the modern condition uh, is actually reflective of Quaker influence on politics. It's just entropy, more or less. But if you guys have theories on the uh, the grand Quaker conspiracy, Quaker occupied government, I'm all ears. So then you've got what seems to be framed as the unambiguous bad guys of the story, which is the Cavaliers. And the Cavaliers were English elites fleeing the Cromwell regime, which was basically a Puritan revolt against the religious persecution that the Puritan colonists were fleeing from. And it's interesting because, at least in my mind, as a kid growing up, Jamestown and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, I always viewed that as one phenomenon, basically. The, the buckles on the hats and the white thing on the collar, that that was just sort of the pilgrims, the first Thanksgiving, basically the first Americans. But these were, in fact, two groups that were violently at odds with each other in England. And so that totally changes the color of everything you understand about like the constitutional conventions where these groups are getting together to like hammer out a government or even, you know, fight a revolution together. It's kind of remarkable. And as far as I can remember, Fisher doesn't say a ton about who was more loyalist or who was more on the side of the patriots. And I mean, Cromwell had been dead for over a hundred years by the time of the revolution. So maybe some of those animosities had cooled. But when you when you listen to Fisher talk about the way they lived and what they believed, the fault lines that would make those kinds of people not get along are super obvious. The Cavaliers were absolutely unregenerate aristocrats. They were not interested in the divine value of hard work. They were not believers in the equality of men under God. Church was 20 minutes long on the dot. And like, it's easy to imagine everyone in prior dispensations being sort of hyper-religious by modern standards, but the type of culture that would produce like an expurgated slave Bible that has socially unhelpful parts stricken from it is a culture that views religion in a pretty instrumental way. In fact, like, I know you're not supposed to draw these kinds of direct comparisons, but if you were looking for, like, if you were trying to find the Baptist faction of colonial America, it would clearly be the Cavaliers. These guys are the reason for the Greco-Roman LARP in colonial America, and their understanding of, of liberty was basically synonymous with, like, prerogative or privilege. That freedom was the ability to rule. It was the ability to control your household and to conquer space. I mean, I, I maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I really feel like if you explained this concept of dominion, the conquest of space, to Washington or Jefferson right out of Bronze Age mindset, they'd be like, yes, that's what liberty is. And so liberty, by definition, is is not something that could be reciprocal. The concept of reciprocal freedom would be incoherent to them. Freedom is the freedom to rule, to rule other people and assert your will. And I almost, I, I wonder if the similarity is because they're both kind of reading the same sources, but they they definitely 
believe in the pater familius with the power of life and death over his dominion, his his patriarchy. That the lord of the estate is the father of that estate. And so like when Washington talks about his family, he's referring to his wife and children, but he's also referring to relatives, poor friends, tutors and clerks, servants, slaves, even strangers who fall under his roof. The the family is not a static set of people connected by blood. They are the patriarch's sphere of authority. They're the people who have placed themselves under or been placed under his protection. And like in most places in the Tidewater or the Chesapeake colony, the primary geographic unit, like instead of in, in New England, you'd have like a township, the primary unit of geography was the plantation. And some of these plantations, I think he says they went through like 27,000 pigs and 20 bulls, just some, just outrageous amounts of food because of the number of people who were considered to be part of that household. And this social structure predates the slave trade. And so Cavalier Virginia was more of a confederation of absolute monarchies than like a single state or a single society. And you could see the way they identify as part of these households rather than nuclear families because they'd call each other cuz or cousin. If, and that's if you were actually related, if you were part of the extended kin group. And you'd call your friends and your acquaintances and everybody else brother. So the membership in the clan was your most emotionally salient way of understanding your place in the world and your relationship to other people rather than I'm his brother, she's my mother. And partly that seems to have been because disease was so rampant that you'd almost certainly lose some children. I think it's like half of kids uh, lost at least one parent before they reached adulthood. So you'd be farmed out to close relatives, and the the father would often be a father figure like an uncle or a, a new husband, a new wife. And because those relationships were so uncertain, it was sort of necessary to give people this dynamic structure in which they could find a place. So it's not like if you lose your parents, you have no place. Because if that was the case, then like a huge fraction of the population would be adrift, including among the elites, because they died with, along with everybody else. Now, you really can't have any discussion of cavalier morality and power dynamics without talking about William Byrd. So William Byrd was a planter in Virginia. And what modern historians love about William Byrd is that he wrote this incredibly shameless, incredibly detailed tell-all memoir of all of his raping and, and beating slaves and servants and throwing shit at his wife and, and chasing around other men's wives. And his, you know, his wife was a sociopath, too. She's like... Um, beating slaves with hot tongs and branding their skin and stuff and like and and then they'll like go have sex and and like it, it's this very like it's a tarantino movie waiting to happen like i'm i'm shocked that django wasn't more like the story of william bird like there's a there's a houseboy who wets the bed and this guy makes him drink a pint of piss and he'll he'll write these diary entries where he's like oh yeah and then i i i kissed this girl and then we got it like and then I raped her and then 
um, went and said my prayers. God forgive me. And it literally goes on like that, like one entry after the other for like months. And it's just, he's just a classic. Like you couldn't make him more villainous if you wanted to. And when I say you can't discuss Virginia without discussing William Byrd, I mean like they literally won't let you. Every single source on like cavalier morality is, is basically just like, well, let's talk about William Byrd. And some of these sources will even be like, oh, William Byrd was like a moral exemplar. He was he was one of the best. And, and you know, uh, Washington and Jefferson were just as bad as him. And everybody, you know, every male aristocrat in the Chesapeake Bay was a serial rapist. And, you know, I, I'm happy to be disproven on this, but I just don't buy it. Like if it was so abundantly attested, why are we always talking about just this one guy? And like when they try to nail Washington with that stuff, they're like, well, he, you know, he flirted with Sally Fairfax. And then Jefferson, like Jefferson, when he was single, does appear to have chased another guy's wife. And of course, there's the Sally Hemings thing. And like, you know, fair enough. Those are bad things. But they're not like a new rape in every journal entry from a guy who does daily journal entries and they're not like waterboarding a little boy with piss. Like, I don't know. So, so when these historians tell me like William Byrd was typical of the culture or was even exemplary, I'm like, that, that's kind of an extraordinary claim. Now, whatever you can say about the personal constraint or morality of these cavalier gentlemen, like it is clear that William Byrd was acting within his legal rights. Like, there was nobody to stop him. People were aware of what he was doing, and they didn't do anything about it. And in a society like ours, where there is so much, where so many things are circumscribed by the law, it's easy to look on what the law tolerates as, like, a moral stain on the character of that society. It's just like God, you know? How could God allow this to happen? Like, if God is all-powerful and he clearly could step in and stop this, why didn't he? And when you live in a big state, an invasive state, your frame of mind when something bad happens is, why, where were the police? But again, this is, this is not a society composed of citizens acknowledging accountability toward a central state. These are essentially fiefdoms. And you have the same impulse operative today when you see atrocities happening in Africa or the Middle East, it's like, oh, we have to go stop it because we have the power to stop it. And there's, there's, you know, um, babies getting thrown out of windows and, and we have to do something. What are we going to do? And of course I'm cheating a little bit because, you know, we're right at the tail end of like 20 years of catastrophe based on that exact type of thinking. But it just is the case that going out in search of monsters to slay is complicated. And I think you see that with the Puritans. I mean, the, the, the Puritans, as a maybe proto-totalitarian state, they at least have the advantage of building their state in the service of the good and in the service of reality. Like, there's not a lot of things that they're trying to get done that are, like, obviously destined to fail. They're not trying to dethrone God, in other words. But this quest for the perfectibility of man leads to the kind of derangement that you see in this hyper-moralistic society. 
now. Again, I'm playing extremes here. Like, this guy was somebody's neighbor. And, you know, so William Byrd was extraordinarily powerful. Like, his size relative to the House of Burgesses or the, 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 the state to the extent that it existed, he was huge relative to that state. So, like, it, it wouldn't be a simple thing for the cops to just come arrest William Byrd. But, but, you know, maybe there's a case to be made that, like, there, there's a monster worth slaying, and it's right there, and, and they should have done that. Like, that's a conversation that's at least supportable. But, like, this idea that, oh, you know, the, the Chesapeake Bay Colony just loved serial rapists and was just so excited to produce maximum rape and piss torture. Like, again, I'm... I'm a dilettante here, but it just strikes me as kind of unserious. Now, regardless of the particulars, these gentlemen, good and bad, whatever range you think they occupied morally, they ruled over their wives and their children and their servants and slaves. Okay, but also their friends and people who were under their roof with the same patriarchal authority. Now, it doesn't mean everyone was treated equally, but it means that the patriarch's authority in his domain was the same. And like, that'll pretty much give you fits if you're any flavor of liberal or even just not having deliberately deconstructed modern Western morality in your own mind. And like, clearly it's not, you know, they're not making up that propensity for abuse. The abuse for sure happened. But like, consider your relationship with your children. Could you abuse your children right now and pretty much get away with it? Like, you could seriously mistreat your kids in all sorts of ways. And the courts would essentially say, uh, you know, we really don't agree. Like the judge might say, I personally really disagree with the way that you're raising your children. And I think it's reprehensible. But our system of law acknowledges huge benefit from giving parents, in all but the most extreme cases, the right to decide how their kids will be raised. And you can imagine... And I think some progressives today do imagine a future world in which parents are far more circumscribed in their liberties toward their children. There's that word. That's the cavalier definition of liberty. Their, their freedom to say what will be with their kids. And this future society looks back through the historical record and says, like, oh, we're kids, you know, um, Parents love their kids, and, you know, the law didn't tell them that they couldn't be horrible to their kids, but were, but were parents pretty horrible to their kids? And they'll be able to find just reams of examples, right, of child abuse, some of which rises to the level of being illegal today, but that doesn't get prosecuted just because we don't acknowledge law enforcement's right to investigate parents that closely. Um, even even the standard of, hey, it's time to look into your business is fairly high. And then beyond that, you'd have another order of magnitude or two of cruelty and spitefulness and unfairness, injustice in family relationships that virtually everyone today would acknowledge to be, you know, a pretty screwed up way to treat your kids. But that we would also say like, eh, you know, 
if we let the police knock down your door for that kind of thing, then we're all going to be in a lot of trouble. And this future society may look back and say, well, how could you let that stand? How could you let that abuse continue? Why wasn't that illegal? And a parent like me would say, well, because I have the right to raise my children, and I'm not cruel to my children. And in order to crusade against all of these wrongdoers, who we both agree are wrongdoers, you would have to abrogate my rights as a parent. And basically, so far, as a culture, we've decided that that moral calculus doesn't require us to abrogate the rights of good parents to chase the bad ones. And so that's one realm, maybe the last realm, where modern Americans still hew to this concept of hegemonic liberty. And that basically is the war that's happening right now over CRT and sex ed and drag queen story hour in the schools. The essence of the argument is, who do your kids belong to? And as obvious as that question seems to us, there are, in fact, two sides uh, to that argument. And their side is, well, what if your kid is gay or trans? Then your refusal to expose them to people like them, your overt distaste for who they are fundamentally as people rises to the level of abuse and the state has an interest in curtailing that, preventing that, investigating you for that. And we disagree both on the level of what types of behavior, what types of parenting decisions rise to the level of abuse, and we also disagree on the more fundamental question of who gets to decide. And, and I've seen people say basically if, with a straight face that your parenting decisions don't involve the democratic process like nobody voted and made you your kids parents and therefore and therefore your your authority over them is not legitimate or not fully legitimate and it should be subject to uh you know democratic norms and processes and like that's obviously friggin bananas to you to you and me but that is a belief that is sincerely held at least by well by people who don't have any kids of their own and so not to put too fine a point on it but Maybe you can imagine people from another part of the country coming and telling you, hey, we heard some stories of people being mistreated, and therefore you don't get to be in charge of your household anymore, and how you might respond to that. And I know you can relate to that because you are currently responding in that way to that. Now, I'll be honest, I'm making them a lot more relatable than they are in the book. I mean, it's their, their, their assessment of what constitutes bad behavior or tyranny is is pretty different from from mine and probably yours i mean violence was pretty common violence against your social inferiors violence against animals all of it was pretty common and it's interesting to me that there are a lot of right-wing commentators who will discuss human refuse and like the need to uh to cleanse the world of filth, but at the same time will be very sensitive around cruelty toward animals. And I just think that there's a there's a dishonesty about claiming that you 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 would have been at home in Sparta or you would have liked to live in one of these societies that was truly hierarchical, truly the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. Because a dog is is like the ultimate agreeable 
weak like target for oppression and if and if oppressing and and doing violence to an innocent dog boils your blood then i'm not saying that you're like a modern person because i don't think that's a modern impulse but i think that you are more humane in your fundamental nature than maybe you're trying to be or i don't know i might just be missing the point there i I just don't get it but one of the things that you notice about the cavaliers is they really do have this capacity to create extraordinary leaders and they do it very systematically and deliberately they raise these young men like every parenting decision is about maximizing thumos like they never restrain aggression they never restrain pride or initiative or ambition that's always encouraged if it's a virtue and overlooked if it's a vice and it really does seem to produce this these extraordinary people, Washington, Jefferson, Lee, even Roosevelt had Scots-Irish ancestry, but the way that he was raised was very consonant with this cavalier ideal, which was you encourage children to pattern their lives after the most heroic figure from the past that they can identify, the most inspiring figure. And this, you know, again, this feeds into what Bap says about autobiography being the most effective way to learn from history they were very strongly encouraged in this very direct unironic hero worship and the idea that you were supposed to like carve your own authentic path would have seemed absurd to them you're you're supposed to go try to be alcibiades or achilles or caesar and the way we currently do history especially for children where it's like all about you know what kind of sorghum paste did the peasants eat and it's all about these big socioeconomic movements and factors uh, would have struck the cavaliers as absolutely ridiculous and repulsive like how do you produce great men when you feed them a diet like that when you teach them that that's the way the world works and it seemed to have been a society that created a lot of extremes like there were clearly some deranged people and like just tons of murder and rape and basically as i'm reading about the cavaliers i'm wondering is there a way to learn from this like hero factory that they built and accomplish some of the same purposes without simultaneously flooding the zone with sociopathy and maybe there isn't like maybe those are two sides of the same coin but I think if, if that's your guess, if that's what you believe, that, that you have to create monsters in order to produce these heroes, and therefore we have very little to learn from cavalier pedagogy, I, I think you have a responsibility to be really sure. And I'm not really sure. I, I, think, I think there's probably a lot we could learn from these people. So I've saved the best for last. The borderers. Border reavers. And this one's funny because I was just reading... A post on Reddit about how David Hackett Fisher uh, clearly made the Border Reavers the villains of his story, and how they were just the 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 brakes on progress and 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 basically savages who 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 prevented America from becoming what it might have become or, or could still become. And the reason that's funny is because when I read this book, I just absolutely fell in love with the Borderers. They're incredible fun. 
fun to read about, fun to imagine being one, maybe not fun to imagine like living around them, but the borders are basically like a European's idea of America. They're violent, ungovernable, crass, savage, adventurous, funny, ignorant, and they come from this incredibly violent, lawless region of Northern Ireland and Scotland that basically no civilization could exist there for hundreds, almost a thousand years because of these constant border skirmishes between Scottish and English warlords. And so if your entire culture grows up under the specter of constant war and you are scratching a living out of the dirt, but you don't want to save any crops because they'll just be stolen. You don't want to build a nice house because it'll just get burned down. So these people were essentially living in sometimes literally holes in the ground. And basically the way Hackett Fisher frames it is these are a people who learn to enjoy the simple pleasures of life, particularly sex and violence. And when you've spent centuries with no ability to appeal to organized law for protection, you become, A, extraordinarily skeptical of government because every form of government that you've ever known or that your ancestors have ever known has basically been a a pirate, a robber. And B, you develop social systems that allow you to protect yourself. And basically the way you do it is by becoming convincingly, legibly insane in the event that you are insulted or crossed. Like, I might not be able to stop you from robbing me or killing me or whatever, but I can promise you that my children and my children's children will pursue you to the ends of the earth, and it absolutely will not stop until my family line or your family line is utterly terminated. And so maybe there's a pretty substantial power differential between you and me. Like you could, on the surface level, take me for everything I've got. And if I'm rational, I will acquiesce to that because acquiescing is better than being murdered or enslaved. But by becoming irrational, that power calculus changes pretty dramatically. And I mean, you you could see that in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's the way those wars were won was by being just absolutely irrationally hostile to the occupation. And it didn't matter. You you couldn't hurt those people enough. You couldn't make them poor enough. You couldn't make the rubble bounce enough to bring them to heel. And so it didn't matter that our soldiers were better trained. It didn't matter that we had better equipment. It didn't matter that we had better battlefield awareness. Like these were people that you you couldn't you couldn't defeat. You would have to ethnically cleanse them. Just remove them from the geography. And that's basically who the borderers were in the border country of England and Scotland. So they come here, and obviously you know, they, they originally come to the, the coastal areas. They come to areas populated by the Puritans and Cavaliers and Quakers. And a lot of them come over as indentured servants, but they tend to die on the plantations of malaria and various other swamp diseases that afflicted the warmer areas of the colonies for you know, a century or more after the revolution. And literally the, the cavaliers, the, the planter aristocracy, tried to bring over a white servant class for decades 
before realizing that like they just die too fast. They're, it's not worth bringing them over, which is why they were replaced with African slaves who came from a West African environment that was more tropical, and so they had more resistance to some of these diseases. Besides which, as, as you might imagine, they just weren't great servants that you know wouldn't do well at a Chick-fil-A franchise, for example. So they can't live in the old Dominion, and they try to go up north, but obviously the Puritans won't have them. And even the Quakers sort of hem and haw about, like, should we tolerate these people because we tolerate everybody? And even they were like, no, we can't tolerate these people. So they send them to the back country. And back there, the borderers just have the time of their lives. They love to fight. And now they get to fight an enemy that they can win against and win permanently. It's not like they just get conscripted into some warlord's band and then some other stronger warlord comes in and wipes them out and they got to start all over again. This is, they get to conquer this frontier and hold it and it's theirs. And so maybe even more than the Puritans who had this like city on a hill idea of America, the borders fall in love with America as a land. And you can see this on census documents Basically, from the beginning, if you ask them what their ancestry is, they don't claim English or Irish or Scottish. They call themselves Americans. And so they go off into the backwoods and pretty much disappear and are happy to disappear. Because, like, what could you possibly have to offer me? What do I want with your government? What do I want with your laws? Why do I need you? And it's pretty clear that that's the birthplace of the libertarian strain in american politics the like when you got that meme of of uh the guy asking how many kids need to die before you'll accept some gun control and the answer is all of them that's that's your inheritance from the borderers and you can see the value in that approach when you look at like the canadian uh charter i, th- I think it's called the charter their equivalent of the bill of rights they have all these rights that are like you know, as long as it makes sense, as long as it's reasonable, you know, we like, yeah, you should have rights. Of course you should have rights, but like there's exceptions and, and we should be careful and, and be sensible and all this stuff. And you've watched as that's just eaten them alive and turned them into effectively a police state, especially over uh, the late unpleasantness. And like we're not different from the Canadians because we have a Second Amendment, because we wrote that down, except in this meta sense that the type of culture that would write down an amendment explicitly intended to arm the population for a rebellion against the government, that kind of tactical irrationality is is what preserves rights. Because like your ancestors couldn't guarantee that you would always be in a position of strength over people who might want to tell you what to do. But they could basically teach you to strap on a vest, you know, and and be willing to burn everything down. And that does make you more powerful. That does even the odds. And that's going to look from the outside like poor impulse control, immaturity. And maybe it needs to be. Maybe it needs to be something that you can't, you can't be bluffing, right? You can't be consciously saying, oh, I'm going to act nuts and then my enemy's going to back down. Like on a certain level, you have to actually be nuts, and does that exist anymore? Are people still like that? I mean, I can think of a handful of demographics. The true heirs of the borderer throne, the true guarantors of American liberty. It seems to work for them. It seems to scare people. And what's particularly interesting about that thought is that 
the borderers and their descendants have always been wildly overrepresented in the American military. They were always the ones who most liked to fight. They were always the ones who were the best at fighting. In the Civil War, what gets described as the elan, the the morale, the incredible leadership of the Confederacy, that's mostly the work of the Cavaliers. That's the aristocracy, the planters who are producing these incredible men that people are willing to follow. But when they talk about Union troops being frightened by the aggressiveness and accuracy and woodsmanship of the Confederates. That's the borderers. Because they just lived to fight. They they fought each other all the time. They fought Indians all the time. When they would have a wrestling match, you could take your pick of either a, a quote, fair fight or a rough and tumble. And a fair fight was a more or less standard, like nothing below the belt type of, uh, of a fight. But a rough and tumble was no holds barred, gouging is fine, biting is fine, headbutting is fine, kicking is fine. And so men would be routinely blinded or lose fingers or be maimed, crippled, you know, broken legs and things uh, because of these fights. They also had bride kidnappings, which, you know, maybe you've heard about in, in Afghanistan and other Central Asian countries being fairly common. There's a lot of commonalities probably having to do with the steppe also being this place that was constantly burned over by various conquerors but each of these bride kidnappings was essentially a raid where they would form an armed uh, party a posse to go over to the bride's house and either sneak her out or demand that she be relinquished and they would fire volleys at the house and stuff and um, the, the, the bride's brothers would fire back and, and, you know, maybe, maybe the bride's family knew they were coming. So they would knock down trees and set ambushes and traps to slow the advance, or they would do it after the bride had been kidnapped. They would run out ahead and try to, um, stop them on the road. And like, obviously in, in most cases, this was a game. It was a pantomime, but in a lot of cases it wasn't. There's some evidence that Andrew Jackson, for instance, kidnapped his wife in an actual kidnapping from her family. And, you know, the truth about this honor culture is that, you know, it's not like there was no way to make things right if there was an offense like that. You you know, he probably had to come back and pay some kind of a dowry, and he probably had to treat her okay, you know, by the standards of the time. Um, and and I, I can't remember where I, where I heard about this. Somebody was talking about Afghanistan and how the young men have this role in the society of like it's their job to kind of be crazy in that sense of uh having a chip on their shoulder being willing to defend their honor and the family's honor by force and then it's the older the tribal sheikhs the tribal sheikhs whose job it is to take them aside and temper their anger and figure out a proportionate response and a and something to go to the offending tribe with and say like you know here's how you can make it right so in that way you get some of the game theoretic advantages of tactical irrationality without having to go nuclear every time someone's feelings get hurt and you could sort of argue that the borderers themselves fill this role in america that they are you know like nixon drunk in the Oval Office with his finger on the nuclear button, 
at least that has historically been the case. When there have been rebellions against government, rebellions against, you know, even rebellions against industry, the mining rebellions 100 years ago, that was all Appalachians, border stock. And like I said, those guys are dominant in the American military to this day. And every one of those guys that I talk to, I, I, you know, I have some friends. Every one of those guys that I talk to that's in combat arms is feeling pretty irrational these days. I think there's probably a buffer of comfort as long as people's basic bills are getting paid. As long as there's somewhere to go to, you know, you can still homeschool your kids. You can still get a different job. You can still technically say what you want. So I'm of two minds about it. Like there's a part of me that thinks, you know, maybe that fire has just gone out and we don't have that honor culture anymore and we're not capable of reviving it. But another part of me thinks that we just we just haven't tripped that breaker yet. Anyway, there's tons you can go into. It's a great book. Totally recommend it. But maybe the most important intuition that I got from that book was that the people who started this country were not just like you and me, and they weren't even like each other. But they were men of action of this kind that's not supposed to exist anymore, not supposed to be possible anymore. But I hear both progressives and right-wing guys talk about them, or at least about the institutions they created, as if it was intended to create this, well, the situation that we're in right now. That, like, in their heart of hearts, they were, like, secular globalist, moralistic, therapeutic deists or whatever. And yeah, that's just like obviously silly to me. But you do have to ask, what did these guys who were trying to LARP as Romans see in like popular sovereignty and separation of powers and due process and all these rules? And particularly, how did they all come together? How did you create agreement between these enormously divergent cultures that this was something that needed to happen and i think if you place yourself in their time these are all reasonable responses to a stultifying decrepit decaying aristocracy founded on a narrative that no longer works like they all wanted out from under this arbitrary and nakedly self-serving power and the puritan answer to this was this sort of we will all get together and make a fist. This, uh, this proto-fascist impulse of apes together strong, right? And the borderers said, we'll go out and fight the Indians and carve out a space and make the rivers run red if anybody screws with us. The Quakers, you know, obviously depended on the violence of others to defend the space that they carved out. But if you want to take their self-image at face value, they were saying, we're going to be so totally obedient to God that God will protect us. And the cavalier notion was basically, we're going to defend our ancient English liberty the same way that the nobles who subdued Prince John did when they signed the Magna Carta. And a lot has been made of the fact that they had a frontier to run to. And that's why this experiment with liberty was possible. And now the frontier is closing and that experiment is coming to an end. And we are turning back toward old world notions of unchanging hierarchies and economic stagnation. But I actually think that that undersells the possibilities today. And it also doesn't give our ancestors enough credit for 
the challenge involved in seizing the opportunities that were before them. So my family and I have recently moved to Northern Virginia. And as far as I knew up until recently, all of my family was potato famine migrants in the late 19th century or Mormon pioneers in the Mountain West. So comparatively shallow roots in America, by certainly by Virginia standards. But I had occasion to look back through my genealogy a little bit, and it turns out that in my mother's mother's line, I've got ancestors who were either born or married or died in Orange County, Fairfax County, Prince William, Albemarle, and Falkir County, all of which are within 20 minutes of my house. I also found out that I've got ancestors who settled in the back country of North Carolina. So I've got the borderers and the cavaliers covered. I had Dutch ancestors in New Amsterdam and Puritans in Boston. And they have all the naming conventions that you'd expect and the family sizes that are right here in the book. I even think I have one or two Delaware Quakers, but I'd rather not know for sure. And in every one of those lines, you've got, with the Puritans, you've got deaths from starvation, you've got murdered by Indians. In Virginia, you've got deaths from malaria, murdered by Indians. In the back country, you've got murdered by other white people, murdered by Indians. And if you consider the opportunities and the frontiers that would be available to you right now in 2022, if you were willing to take on a comparable risk profile to spending 10 weeks at sea, maybe starving to death, maybe dying of typhus, maybe getting murdered by Indians, then the frontier isn't as closed as maybe you think. And when you think about all the people back in Europe who didn't take those opportunities, there's a rationality to that. And so to compare yourself to the set of people who had already braved these existential dangers to secure the space that they made for themselves and for their children and grandchildren and say like, oh, it's not fair that I don't have those kinds of opportunities. It's like, well, what would be comparable to that today? Who are the types of people who are doing that kind of thing? Are they soldiers of fortune in Africa? That's probably comparable in terms of risk profile. I mean, they're probably at least guys like entrepreneurs. The frontier in a certain sense, has always been closed. They didn't come to an empty country. They came to a country full of hostile Indians who would rape their wives and scalp them and enslave their children. That was the wide-open country. That was the promised land that you are envious of them for having access to. And even after they took it, the lawlessness of the frontier created its own challenges and its own constraints on their practical liberty. And, you know, I'm not trying to tell you, like, uh, because we have computers and TVs and Xbox and abundant processed food that you're better off than they are, but our wealth does create opportunities that were not open to them. If you are willing to deploy it in the kinds of extreme high-risk opportunities that they were deploying their resources in. And you know what? This thing they did had a pretty good run. 200 years is pretty good. 200 years of extraordinary abundance and freedom for their posterity. And maybe that has nothing to do with the particulars of the system that they built. Maybe it's just a function of us being who we are. But 
you look at Canada, you look at the UK, there's something different about this place. There's something different about what we've got here. And if I could build something half as durable for my children and their descendants, and then they had, you know, in 100 years or 150 or 200 years, if they had to take some responsibility for that and fight for it and maybe build something new of their own, I wouldn't view my effort as wasted. So we went out and grilled and went down to the river and I took my kids shooting and I just felt incredible gratitude for the people that brought us here and built this place that we get to live in. So God bless America. Hope you had a great fourth. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,